The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. In the U.S. and worldwide, people faced the fears, symptoms, and death associated with COVID-19 in different ways. Many in New York were able to move out to the, out of the city to shelter in place, work from home, manage through, but not everyone and not all frontline responders. Today, you are going to hear the inside story of FDNY's emergency medical responders and their response to COVID-19. Our guest is Anthony Almagera. He's a lieutenant F from FDNY. He's a paramedic. And he's the author of Riding the Lightning, A Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic. I will tell you that when I read Anthony's book, it simply took my breath away. What Anthony gives us is an inside look into some of the darkest days New York City has ever known. It is the story of the emergency medical service responding to a pandemic that mystified and caught the city off guard. Between mid-March and April 2020, it killed between 17,000 and 21,000 New Yorkers. For these responders, the physical and emotional trauma, the witnessing of death after death, was both enormous and unknown and unseen. Anthony Almagera is an FDNY EMS lieutenant and vice president of Local 3621, the New York Fire Department EMS Officers Union. He is a 20-year veteran working in NYC EMS Systems, a Brooklyn native. Anthony is a world traveler. He has visited close to 100 countries and is a practicing Buddhist. He is a board member for the EMS FDNY Help Fund. This is a nonprofit organization established by active EMS personnel to assist EMTs and paramedics in overcoming both financial and emotional hardship. Anthony has worked to bridge the compensation disparities between FDNY EMS and FDNY firefighters and NYPD. But it was the extraordinary response and toll experienced by the EMS responders during the COVID-19 pandemic that propelled Anthony to write Riding the Lightning, A Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic. Since March of 2020, Anthony has been profiled on the front page of the Washington Post, featured by CNN, Al Jazeera, USA Today, NPR, the BBC, and numerous other media outlets, including an article on him in the New York Times Sunday edition. Lieutenant Anthony Almagera, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you very much for having me, Suzanne. I'm honored to be on your show. And Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Very much. Okay. Um, so... Throughout the book, I want our listeners to know the book, the book's amazing. And Anthony's terrific at explaining medical terms. So my first question was, what do we mean when we say riding the lightning? 
So when I first started in New York City EMS back in 2002, I worked, uh, I was very fortunate to work with a lot of old timers. EMS had attracted people in the 70s and early 80s who were medics in the Vietnam War, and they were very colorful with their language. So I, in 2004, when I came on to the fire department, I worked with this old timer who had started the job in the early 70s. And uh, one day he came back from a call and stated, hey, I had a hot job last night. He was riding the lightning. <laughs> and I said, Bill, what, did, what does that mean? And he goes, oh, we shocked him numerous times with the defibrillator. So that means riding the lightning. And I thought it would be a nice metaphor for the trials and tribulations and triumphs of the book. Okay. And actually, it often is a lifesaver because the defibrillator very often fix problem with electrical current in the heart. And so very often, riding the lightning might mean that you save the patient's life. Yes. I mean, if we're able to shock you, you have a chance. Yeah, so. yeah. It's a, it's a good thing sometimes riding the lightning. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, give us a sense, Anthony, so we understand who's who in the department. How do you differentiate EMTs from paramedics? So EMTs, emergency medical technicians, are basic life support. So the way to best describe it is if you get hit by a car and you break your ankle, you're going to see EMTs. They give limited medications. But they do a lot of the uh, what they call the grunt work, where you know they're they're picking up the sick patients, the lower uh, acuity patients, the trauma patients. The paramedic is a more highly trained uh, emergency medical responder, where we give numerous medications, read and interpret EKGs, do surgical procedures, uh, intubate patient mm -hmm. we, we, we if you took out training and put it into a hospital setting we would be above a nurse and below a physician as a physician assistant okay so there's not as many of us and we tend to go to jobs that are on the higher acuity medical wise scale cardiac arrest uh, heart attacks asthma patients etc cetera, etc cetera. okay now do I have this right? Before the pandemic, or just as the pandemic's hitting, you had an injury in your with your arm, but you could have stayed at a desk job, but your decision was to be in the field to support your teams? Yes. So in the book, I talk about right before the pandemic drops, a few months before, I was uh, on a call with an old lieutenant of mine, Joe Jengis, who had just recently retired. And I get the call to go back up the cruise. And unfortunately, Joe was having a heart attack and he eventually died. And um, he was a wonderful man. Joe Jengis taught me a lot on this job. So I was in one sense, I was happy to be there to try my best. And, and of course, I was sad that we couldn't save him. But in the process of rendering patient care, uh, my left bicep tendon snapped. Mm. And it rolled up into my bicep. It looked like a Popeye arm. Whoa. Mm. And uh, so, yes, I could have had the surgery right away and stayed home or stayed at a light duty spot. But when the pandemic really got rolling, I, I said, no, I'll just work through it and have the surgery at a later date. Mm. And as if, when people read the book, you'll see that he stayed with it 
the whole way. It's really remarkable. Now, one of the things that you say in the book, and I'm going to give an example, and then I'm going to hand it to you. You say that the pandemic, you'd been there 20 years, and the pandemic was like nothing, these are your words, I'd ever experienced. It crashed into New York like a hurricane. It caught the city off guard, residents, government officials, school teachers, everyone. One example is that on March 30th, 2020, the busiest day in the history of the Fire Department of New York Emergency Medical Service, you received 7,253 calls, Anthony. That means you said one call every 20, every 12 seconds. How on earth did you guys cope? Well, we didn't. To give you some context of how great a number that is, and how prolonged those numbers were, 6,500 up for months. On 9-11, there was about 6,500 calls into the EMS system, but there weren't 6,500 patients. Those were multiple callers calling for the same person. And that was a one-day event. This was 9-11 call volume with patients for months. Wow. And... On a busy, if you're in a busy truck in a busy area, maybe you do two or three cardiac arrests a week. During the pandemic, crews were doing five or six a tour. My busiest tour was 13 cardiac arrests in 16 hours. Oh, my gosh. So we weren't coping. We we were running on fumes. And to say that that call, when we cracked 7,000, when there's only a workforce of EMS workers, roughly 4,500 at the time, and a third of us were sick. Mm. So that crushing call volume was burdened by a smaller percentage of the workforce because so many were out sick. We started to burn out. We started to get sick. We started to um, struggle with a lot of the things that we were seeing on day in and day out. And this Unfortunately, what happened, the suicide started to come. Mm. And we had up until from the beginning of the pandemic till now, we have had eight members commit suicide. Mm. You so. could, yeah. The, you know, it's as you say in the book at one point, saving people in horrific circumstances, even though it's taking, it's burning you out, sustains you because you've achieved something. But to be to have numbers that you can't possibly possibly cope with has to become morally very injurious to to anyone involved. I think the other thing you mentioned is everywhere you guys turned, you said nurses and ERs were saying, "Please don't bring more. Half of us are sick. We only have one or two nurses." You said Elmhurst Hospital, which was the epicenter. They were totally unprepared. People were dying while they were waiting to get in. So it's what you're saying is your team was up against a situation that couldn't possibly win. No, and especially for years through the advocacy of being a union delegate, we had warned them. We had warned the city and the department that we were unprepared for something of this magnitude, that we got lucky with the other epidemics and pandemics, that we had a few patients of H1N1 and other SARS, but we didn't get hit. When Ebola dropped, 
we we had a patient. We were the first person to uh, treat the Ebola patient was an FDNY EMS crew, but mm. that didn't take off. And we kept warning them that we needed more staffing. We needed to make sure there was supplies. So not only the burnout from the actual patients and the number of patients who were critical, but the fact that there was no support on the back end. Mm-hmm. There was a picture in the paper at the time where nurses were wearing garbage bags as personal protective right. equipment. Uh, there was a meeting with me and the department and the other union leaders saying that they only had a few days left of the N95 masks, to which I responded, then you only have a few days of us responding to calls. Mm-hmm. So to feel it on both ends really was a scary situation. And then, you know, when we saw the hospitals that were overloaded, um, that they were using our stretchers. Mm. We brought patients in, they were using our stretchers because they were out of beds, which delayed crews to get back in service. Uh, the, the healthcare system, which really was built on, on it was a, a house of cards built on you know mud had finally collapsed and to this day it still hasn't recovered have there been any changes anthony as a result of we're going to talk about you going to the media but in the aftermath of this have there been any changes in terms of compensation or recognition for sick days or even just supplies and services for ems Unfortunately, the changes have been very minimal. Uh, we did achieve a contract, which was a nice raise, but we are still $35,000 plus behind our fellow first responders of police and firefighters. Mm-hmm. We we are not short as far as safety equipment at the moment, but we don't have another pandemic happening. You know, we're, we're at the tail end of COVID, so... Thankfully, that is stabilized, but the workforce hasn't stabilized. Mm-hmm. As of last week, we are losing on average between 10 and 15 EMS workers. They, through, they're just quitting. They're retiring if they can. Uh, 72% of the workforce currently has less than five years experience. Wow. Since the pandemic, since March of 2020, we have hired in excess of 1,700 people. Mm. So one of the, we can't you know, keep up. One of the things you say in the book is that even though they might love, and it takes a special type of person to be uh, uh, a paramedic, the money difference is so great, and the and the benefits with the other services that they kind of people may be leaving, even though they loved it. I mean, that's that's the saddest part of all. When I read that, you know, in terms of. But if they would compensate or balance the compensation, probably many more would stay. Do you think that's true? A hundred percent. I've had numerous people leave over the years and tell me, Anthony, I would have stayed. But Mm -hmm. so if you become a firefighter, a cop, a sanitation worker in New York City, you get unlimited sick leave. EMS personnel who are taking care of sick Sick people people. only get 12 days a year. Oh, my goodness. If I die in the line of duty, which we do, I recently had a lieutenant who was stabbed to death in Queens, Mm. unfortunately. Our families receive three years of pay. That's it. If you die as a sanitation worker, corrections, police, fire, your family gets to pay in benefits for life. Wow. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We're going to have to stop, but it's unbelievable what you're saying. 
Um, we're going to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we are so fortunate to have with us today Anthony Almagera. He's an FDNY EMS lieutenant. He's the author of a really amazing book, Riding the Lightning, A Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic. It's groundbreaking because as you're hearing us speak, what you read about in the book is what people simply do not know. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Anthony Almagera. He's the FDNY EMS lieutenant and the author of Riding the Lightning, A Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic. Um, he's really involved in a way that very few people are and in a way that really makes a difference in terms of us understanding. When people say there was no such thing as COVID, you have to read this book. It's an it's 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 a statement that is almost impossible. Anthony, one of the things that you talk about is at the Elmhurst Hospital in March twenty on March twenty fifth, twenty twenty, um, was really the the epicenter. It was really the epicenter of the United States in terms of numbers of cases. Um, the problem is that an ER doctor tried to talk to the news about how unprepared they were, but no one was really listening. At that point, someone says to you, Anthony, find a camera and speak to the media. Tell us what that was like. So how that came about is I remember sitting there watching Cuomo on TV, Governor Cuomo, 
talking about how there were a thousand people that died of COVID. And I kept saying, no, there was 1400 because they didn't count the 400 before the hospital. They were talking about the doctors and the nurses and everything that they were struggling with. And rightfully so, but nobody was talking about EMS. So it was a rare half a day off. And I got a phone call from the Lieutenant of the EMS station right outside of Elmhurst hospital. And he said, Anthony, there's about 20 cameras here. So I said, I'm on my way. So I get there. I'm in a union jacket and jeans. And I just go up to the first camera I see. I said, Hey, my name is Anthony. I have a story to tell you what they're telling you that's happening in the hospital is not the only thing that's happening here. And I just went down the list of cameras, uh, agents, France, Prasse. BBC, WPIX, whatever it was. And I said, hey, there's a there's the EMTs and medics are struggling here. There's people that are not even making it to the hospital. The number of people dying is 40% more than what the uh, governor is telling people at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it just then it just started to snowball and took it on a life of its own there, where uh, I tried to put a human face on what was happening to us in in the field. You know, the difference between the two things is if you're, when you go to the hospital, you're on their territory. It's white walls, it's sanitary, it's, it's white coats. It's very, they put you in a room to speak to you. EMS work is coming to your house. Right. It's very personal. I see the pictures on the wall of Johnny who got a trophy, you know, in Little League. Meanwhile, we're doing CPR on them. I see the life that's lived there, for better or worse. So to go into someone's home and pronounce them and work them up becomes very personal and takes its toll in a different way as a healthcare provider. And I wanted to get that message out that this pandemic is destroying a vital component of the healthcare chain. It's such an important thing because what you're saying is the nature of an EMS worker's relationship with the family and the person who's suffering is one that cannot just become a number. You do give stories in the book where you're so upset with people who are afraid and they have the grandfather in the garage with COVID, the grandmother in a hallway. You see that they are so bereft. You you, you make it clear that one of the things that really you suffer burnout from is just the degree of condolences going on every day, even as from call to call. I mean, I think I, I it's a shame, you, you know, I'm so glad you went to the media, because when you read about the fact that you don't have the supplies, you know, 400 of your own people were sick. Um, there was no sanitizing ambulances, but more importantly, your people were facing people who were crying and were mystified and terrified at the same time. Yeah. And unlike other times when we go to patients' homes, you know, if somebody's having a heart attack, I'm not having a heart attack. So I'm there to help, but I'm not, I I don't have the same fears or, but now I have the same fears. We're in the same boat. I'm here to help. But I'm also thinking this could be the this could be my last call. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we lost 10 members to COVID. And I have numerous others who just never came back to work because they were long term with the damage that COVID caused to them. 
So the compassion fatigue was very real because you, you, the worry component for oneself is just overwhelming. Right. Now you're trying to take care of others and, and, and the lack of resources. I had people sleeping in their cars because they, they were afraid they would bring home. Uh-huh. They were sick. They would bring it home to their families. I had numerous members call me saying their grandmother died. They think they're the ones that got them sick. Uh-huh. How do you know, right? You know, right. I got it right. on the job. I brought, you know, they didn't provide lodging. There was a whole breakdown of what do we do with the with the EMS people, you know, who are responding to 6,000, 7,000 calls a day. They didn't, they didn't have a plan for us. And when we suggested things, we were shut down. There was a lag. When I say we, the union. And the other union presidents or heads felt comfortable not taking care of EMS? No, the union, no, the the EMS unions were all fighting with the department in the city for, so the the EMTs and medics, the head head and the vice president and president of their union was also trying to advocate and do things Mm-hmm. members and the president of my union was also um trying to advocate for what we need i just have a knack for being able to uh convey with brevity in front of a camera and say hey you guys need to listen to this and capture what's going on mm-hmm. uh I knew I had the ability to do that. I studied theater years ago. I wanted to be an actor. So being in front of people, I'm not nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel I speak okay. So I felt like, let me take these talents. That's great. And, try and, and, and use them to, to get the message that there's a workforce out here that you need, but is needs help. Absolutely. Yeah. Just, just to um, underscore it again for our listeners, Anthony writes in his book that you have all these ambulances and one physician that they can call at some point to tell, direct them to a hospital. This became completely out of control. As you said, there were people were holding on the line for 52 minutes. Eventually the rule was just head to any hospital. The hospitals themselves had lines. Now, one thing that warmed my heart a little bit is how did it happen that you actually got some kind of informal help, people dropping off food and masks? Tell us a little bit about that after your news brief. So I started doing all this media and became a little bit of a focal point of a person, a point of contact for media about updates of what was going on, et cetera, et cetera, that people started watching it and they reached out. So I had the actor Jeffrey Wright, who's been in numerous movies, reached out and said he wanted to help local restaurants stay open, raise money to purchase their food and feed EMS workers. Nice. So we were able to do that, which was a big relief because it was so busy to be able to grab food on the run Mm. was a big thing. We had other organizations that reached out to me to try and um, set up similar things. And then we had a guy who months prior was in a motorcycle accident and I helped him get seen at the hospital who also had a heart attack 
and he called me and I sent Cruz to go to go take care of him and and he's still alive to this day but he he happens to be a big wig in this big huge motorcycle club that's very well connected and what he did was when we were sitting there struggling he got his motorcycle friends to get together and have the families cook food and deliver family food to families throughout EMS and wow. education so you know help from places that I didn't even couldn't even have imagined would step up you know really really buoyed us and gave us a little glimmer that people were watching and understood you know what was going on with us and and wanted to help yeah it's heartwarming you know we we the human response to the human message was just terrific now one thing you write in the book that I think was very poignant. Poignant, you said, the FDN, the um, FDNY runs the bulk of the ambulances in New York City. In the two decades, I've witnessed stillbirths, abused children, dismembered bodies, suicides. But before coronavirus hit in the spring of 2020, I never cried on the job. This was different, right, Anthony? Yes, it was. Uh, um, I guess you know. I knew, I felt, I had a sense of what was coming. That this was gonna, this was gonna be really bad. I went on a call. I couldn't console the person. I was afraid that they may have COVID. We couldn't save the person, and it just became this thing, where, I guess I was, I, I was just overcome by grief. And for the first time in my career, where I couldn't put it away someplace, I couldn't act out and try and distract myself. There was nothing to do, nowhere to go. I just had to sit with it. And mm. and the thing about naming the book Riding the Lightning is that energy of a, of lightning is so powerful and immense and it's beautiful in its in its origin and, and to watch it, but it has to land someplace. Right. And when it lands, it's usually destructive. Mm. Right. And I think all that energy finally came out of me and, and and I just broke down crying because I started to feel hopeless. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not until we're talking tonight that I'm that I'm really becoming aware that, you know, something when you yourself are afraid of the danger of the people who you're helping in terms of being contaminated or catching the virus or being even sick and not even knowing it, the whole level of anxiety as well as a sense of hopelessness makes sense. It becomes a no-win situation. You know, they say that when somebody feels suicidal, the three eyes are involved. They feel like it's interminable intolerable and inescapable for some of your friends and even maybe for you at some points it starts to feel like how do we get out of this well how do we get a win here it, it it's a very very difficult story you're sharing and i i don't think people understood this i i know i didn't i don't think people understood what was really going on in the city and how this group of responders was simply being ignored and you have to understand that we come from a place where we're ignored traditionally. Mm-hmm. 
You know, EMS is we had Mayor de Blasio in a in a news conference prior to the pandemic saying when they asked when a reporter asked him about EMS and pay parity, et cetera, et cetera, he said, Well, that job is different. He he put us in a different category of not on the same level as or importance, which when, I you wish. Combine, when you combine all those things and then you come across a pandemic, you're like, well, why am I sacrificing for a city that doesn't even value me, mm-hmm. that doesn't value my life? Mm-hmm. And, and people had nowhere to turn with that. And, and they were like, well, you know, felt hopeless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you, at those points, you would like the politician to r- do a ride around for a day or two with your staff, because you can't know it until those of us who have had EMS come to our homes, those of us who know what they do to save people, it's a very different experience once you've personally been involved with a crew that has helped you or even has tried. You're correct. And the thing about EMS is it's not something that the public will go and tell another person that they their coworkers. If if there was a house on fire and a firefighter pulled you out the next day around the water cooler, you're gonna sit there and say, Wow, my house burned down and this guy came in and pulled me out and you tell that story. Or if you were robbed and a cop happened to be on scene, you would tell that story. But if you had a heart attack, you don't tell that story. In America, we don't like to talk about illness and injury because I think the way that this society that we've set up is that's looked at something to be frowned upon or preyed upon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to sit there and go and champion the medics who came when I had the heart attack. We're going to thank them privately and quietly. But the next day at work, I'm not going to tell you about my heart attack because I don't want you to go and say, well, you know, Anthony had a heart attack. He may not be up to the job anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't like yes. to talk about, when people see the ambulance that's acknowledging their mortality because they know what the ambulance does. It's a specific, it's, it's specific. And unfortunately that keeps EMS behind the velvet curtain. That's I do all very... these wonderful things. I get to hear all the intimate details of your life. The air back in the ambulance becomes a confessional. The, the stethoscope turns into the white collar. You tell me every your deepest, darkest while I'm treating you or listening to you, and then I hold on to it. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think people think it's contagious, the vulnerability of it. And so they don't talk about it. But if we were to poll families, there's probably very few families who haven't had the need for an ambulance to come to their house at some point. It's, it's, it's really, it's really important. I did like, and maybe it's an anomaly. I think that you talked about having this dinner where your EMS team is on one side and people whose lives you saved, they come back and share a dinner with EMS team. Is that? Yeah, that's called the second chance brunch. (laughs) It's a great name. Yeah, it's a it's 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 a nice experience because oftentimes we bring people into the hospitals and we don't get to follow up. You know, we they go into <laughs> the ether. So what's nice about this is if once we save somebody, and if they agree, we get to meet them and talk to them and see their life is lived. And I've had the good fortune of being at it a few times, and I had one where I wrote about in the book. We saved a man, and then at the brunch, his daughter 
popped out from behind him and looked up at me and said, uh, thank you for saving my dad. Yeah. Nice. And, you know, there were tears in my eyes. It was like, okay, kid, get away. You know, I was struggling with the, <laughs> wow, the this was cool. Yeah, this was cool. That was a wonderful feeling. And, and it's a nice opportunity but unfortunately it's very rare you know that mm -hmm. we get to meet yeah yeah it's before. it's not rare it's too rare i think one of the things we mentioned a little bit before we started the show that your your teams don't get a chance to talk about get training in or get support from enough counseling services is how understandable the burnout and moral injury would be here if i'm supposed to save someone and I can't, even though it's not my fault because the line to the emergency room was more than this man could withstand and he died on the way. I somehow take it as a hit. I mean, it's it's like oh, when our military goes and someone says, okay, move out the tank and there are two children wounded. One of the military men I've had on the show, he said, "How I was haunted by that. I was haunted by that when I came back to the States. How do we not take care of kids? But yet he was following orders. So in some ways, you guys had no choice and no ability to do what you're supposed to do. And, you know, we're not so rational when we're being hard on ourselves. So we think we should have been able, we could have been able. But you're making it so clear and your book makes it so clear that this was a this was a situation where the, the, the deck was stacked against your teams. There was just no way. And, and it was such an overwhelming situation in terms of numbers. I mean, you're talking about um, so many numbers coming in that you couldn't even respond to the calls. No. Yeah, jobs were holding for hours. We didn't have enough resources for that. Uh, the mental health component of of what EMS workers need has been lacking for years. Mm -hmm. Just for your audience so they can understand the, the the effects of what we do and how it affects EMS workers specifically. Amongst 911 providers, cops, firefighters, EMS, EMS workers have the highest rates of suicide. Mm -hmm. We have the highest rates of substance abuse and we have the second highest rates of divorce. Mm -hmm. So all these things that we see in combination with the things that we have to deal with in regular life, and especially so many of us have to work two or three jobs on top of that. In the book, I talk about a guy I work with who works, and then he's got to go stock shelves because he needs second income. <laughs> Imagine you're, you're doing CPR in the daytime, and you're putting soup on aisle nine and, and the night. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then, and so all that wears you down mentally. And you have to be there mentally for your patients. But really, who's there for us? Mm. And so that's why we started the EMS FDNY Help Fund to help alleviate some of the burdens that EMS members were having. And through that fund, we were able to provide uh, mental health counseling. It's still not enough. Unfortunately, the fund is limited. That's why we ask for donations and we try and get people to uh, to kick in so that we can pay for more therapy sessions and more other things that and other things that arise that are emergencies with um, our EMS workers. 
Well, let me ask you right now, if there was someone listening and they wanted to contribute, how would they do it? They would log on to www.emsfdnyhelpfund.com and you would go to the page and you can make a donation. Every little bit helps and it goes to a worthy cause and it's a, you know, it's a 501c, it's a tax write-off. And uh, we've been able to help people whose houses have burned down, uh, people who needed surgeries and went off payroll people who uh, had family issues, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, during COVID, we were able to help members with uh, many things. And we still provide mental health services to this day. Mm -hmm. Terrific. One thing you did is make the comparison. And I know because I was involved with FDNY after 9-11, they do have the advantage, Anthony, of having the house being able to debrief, everybody goes back, there's a brotherhood, there's a connection that really supports mental health. Now, I know you sort of independently tried to do it by cooking for your your teams and gathering people. I mean, I think it was at a very desperate point where you thought, well, so it seemed you said, I, I gotta, I've got to cook dinner for these people. And you, I mean, that whole idea of connection, we mentioned it before the show, it's invaluable. You seem to get that so well. Because I think people, I mean, really responded to you whenever you did have one of these cookouts. Yeah, unfortunately, in in New York City, EMS workers don't sit at stations. They sit on street corners. Right. Just too busy. There's not enough of us. We get sent all over the city. So what I tried to do was initiate that every Sunday when it tends to be, not during the pandemic, obviously, post-pandemic, where the Sunday turned out to be a little slower so I made sure I made lunch for everybody. They came back. And just that camaraderie, just that sitting around and, and oh, you had that type of job too? Oh, yeah, I had that. And how do you feel? And all those things, even just to BS a bit around the table, you know, and share a meal helps decompress and and helps have relatability amongst your coworkers so that it feels like you're part of a team and a job that can ve- that can feel at times very individualized. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you are so right. We know that when people come together their neurophysiology changes. They relax more. When someone tells a horrific story to someone else just by reason of telling it, it gets lighter. When people connect they're able to regulate. And if you can regulate, you can make sense out of what's happening. You can reflect a little bit more. And I think I, throughout the book, every time you do it, I, I thought this this man knows. He, he knows about all this. And they really were quite dependent and very loving, I think, towards you for doing it. It was a very rough scene over and over as you described the scene. You know, you I think, and I encourage people to read the book, it's almost beyond belief. How how many hours people were out there trying to save people in a situation that was unworkable? Yeah, even if the relatability is, we don't know what's happening, right? But we're in this together. And I think people were starting to have that, maybe for the first time in EMS, hey, we're all getting punched in the face, so we're all going to band together and, you know, plant our feet so we don't get knocked down. And mm-hmm. and the work that the EMTs and medics 
did during this was I couldn't have been prouder at any moment in my career. Mm-hmm. In a career of being proud of the, my coworkers, the other lieutenants and the captains and like I said, the EMTs and medics, the way they stood their ground in spite of overwhelming odds and lack of resources that they still got up. I had a a quick story. I had an EMT who got COVID and she was sick and she was at home. And I and I she called the station. I picked up the phone. I said, hey. And she goes, Hey, Lieutenant, I'm sorry, uh, uh, I, I'm not there. And she, I was like, well, you got COVID, you know, you, you, you know, you got to take care of yourself. She says, no, I feel like I'm letting you guys down. Mm-hmm. And it was, wow, look, you know, it's like, get me back into the game, coach. <laughs> yeah. you know? And it was, it was, so for me, and I'm getting a little emotional now recalling that, but for me, to hear that sense of dedication was like, wow, yeah, this is what it is. This is what we do. This is, you know, it's it's an amazing, amazing job. It's a beautiful job in its essence. And it deserves to be applauded and lauded for everything that it needs and wants. Because that girl sat there and said, hey, I'm sorry for getting sick. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. I'm letting you I'm letting the team down. I'm letting the people that we need that need us down. Mm. Now, Anthony, is this do I remember this correct? You were, were you had you enrolled in the fire department or police department and and you decided when you were there for a while I, in the training, this is not for me. I'm, I want to I want to go back to uh, be a paramedic or do I have that right? Yes. In 2007, before I got on the job. I had taken a bunch of civil service exams and firefighter was one of them. And in 2007, they actually called and I said, Oh, you know, I know I'd make more money there. I know I'd have maybe a better quality of life. Uh, I should go, you know, I, I tried to rationalize it in my head and I went for the first two days and I was 30 years old. And uh, I remember the instructor yelling at me because I walked on the sidewalk and it's all the, you know, mind games they play. And they, I said, where do you want me to walk? And he's like, in the street. And I was like, but this car's in the street. It's dangerous. And his face <laughs> twisted 17 different ways. And I said, I don't think I'm cut out to be a firefighter. I loved the interaction and still do with the people that we take care of, the varied uh, um, aspects of New York City life, all the p- communities, the immigrants, the the different languages. And mm. you mentioned my traveling. I've been to now 105 countries. It's amazing. It's yeah, fabulous. Wonderful. Yeah. And, and you got to see patients' faces light up when I go, where you're from? And they go, oh, I'm from Mongolia. Oh, I've been to Mongolia. <laughs> I'm and sure you know, that's true. Yeah, that's they so go, what? And, I, and, they, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting there telling them about what I saw in Mongolia, and I'm starting an IV. I'm giving you medicine. I'm making terrific. Yeah, I didn't even realize it. They're like, "Oh, look at this guy. He's he's one of us." Yeah, Anthony, we're going to have to take a quick break, and then we're going to come right back. But you and your trips are a wonderful thing. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Anthony Almagera, and he is the author of "Riding the Lightning: A Year in the Life of a Pandemic of a um, Paramedic During the Pandemic." Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. It is time to change the negative narrative of divorce. Families are hungry for a different option. Listen to The Good Divorce Show with Karen McNinney. You will discover how to function as one family living in two homes. There are high-functioning, stable, and happy divorce families living in your neighborhood. What's their secret sauce? What did their journey look like? Do they have regrets or recommendations? Let's find out. It's never too late to have a good divorce. The Good Divorce Show, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. You're listening to Psych Up Live, and we're here with Anthony Almagera. He is the FDNY EMS lieutenant and the author of a very, very important book. It's just, you won't put it down, Riding the Lightning, A Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic. So, Anthony, one of the things that you write in um, in the book and you say about your coworkers, you say it takes a very special kind of someone to become an EMT paramedic, to step into the unknown, to care for strangers who are sick, injured on a daily basis. But that is really your story, Anthony. Yes, it is my story. And, and in the book, I, I thought it was important to tell aspects of my upbringing and, and what all the influences, good and bad, that led me to have an empathetic response for strangers. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's really when they say it's a calling, that's yes, it's a calling, but there's a lot of factors that go into people's lives. And it's usually a lot of us come from a traumatic background of mm-hmm. some sorts. Mm-hmm. I once had an academy class, 60 EMT students, and I asked them, raise your hand if you do not. Do not come from a house where the family is divorced or the or has immediate drugs. I mean, in the immediate family has drugs and alcohol, or your parents are divorced. And out of the whole class, only two came raised. Yes, so but that's, 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 that's 58 people who come from backgrounds like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. what do we know? We say it's not what happens to you, it's what you do. With what happens to what happened to you that makes the difference. Look at what those fifty-eight people and you have done. Because if you've been up close to pain and trauma, you know how to respond to it if that yes. is your calling. Yeah. Hundred percent. 
And yeah. that's why it's more important than ever that the people who come from those backgrounds, who struggle with the issues of being raised in those backgrounds, now come into a job where those attributes that were developed through pain and suffering become genuine attributes and can be applied to having empathy, sympathy, and actual technical ability of fixing somebody or helping somebody, those people need help. Yep. Yep. That's beautifully said. Anthony, we're just about out of time. I always ask my guests for a take-home message. Given what you saw and your book, what message do you want to send out to our listeners and anyone else who hears this, this podcast? Oftentimes, we don't think about the people driving the ambulance. We just see this ambulance just fly by, lights and sirens, even if they were the ones calling the ambulance. They walk into our houses, the EMTs and medics, and we never ask them their names or how their day is going. We just immediately unload what's going on with us. And I get it. You call 911. You're going through something. And that's we're not there to be friends. We're there to be friendly. But I need people to understand that those two people that came in, that started the IVs, gave you the medicine, shocked you, got you to the hospital, saved your life, they're humans. They're human beings with all the same complexities, emotional and physical and otherwise, that you have. And that those people need care. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. when you're at your lowest and most scared, they're going to be the ones that are going to say, hi, my name is Anthony. I'm here to help. And you'll never remember their names or you'll struggle with that. But I need you to remember, I need your listeners to remember that they, those people need help. They need care. They need to be able, being a paramedic should be your only job. You shouldn't have to have three jobs. Right. You should have access to mental health care. So the people listening to this, if you have EMS in your communities, go say hello, get involved with them, advocate with the politicians to make sure that they're properly funded with the right equipment and that they're getting the care that they need because Perfect. we're all in this together. That's yeah. what I took away from the pandemic. As much as people wanted to separate, you couldn't. We're all in this together. And I don't want to give away the ending of my book. Okay, I don't but want you love, to either. Yeah, <laughs> but love, and I'm saying this in the in in the, in a really brotherly, sisterly way, where we're all in this thing called life together. Love will pull us through. It's terrific. Thank you so much. Now, Anthony, how can they find this book? What's the best way for people to get the book? You can get the book at any bookstore they can order it for you if they don't have it in stock you can go online and get it on amazon and Barnes and noble and target you can also get the audiobook it's my voice you that i'll take yes if you want to hear my voice take you to work (laughs) it sounds great uh the audiobook is available on itunes and all the other um audiobook sellers and uh, i have something else it was just purchased by cbs to possibly turn into a TV show. Wonderful. Right, so the book, so. So you'll come well, back and tell us about your TV show. 
I hope so. You know, it's, you know <laughs> okay. that's another learning process. But yes, that'd be great. You know, that'd be great. Okay, I want to thank you again for coming on, as well as the the journey you took through this pandemic and the people that you helped. Thank you so much, Anthony. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, on all the podcast Apple apps, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple. Remember, most of all. Be safe, embrace other people, and keep listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.